0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. So Romans chapter 2. So before we dive into Romans chapter 2, I want to keep taking us back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, because that is the thesis of the book of Romans, and everything hinges upon two statements that Paul makes. So in Romans 1:16, Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? power, power of God." for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God has been revealed. Okay, so in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, there are two crucial things that we need that the gospel answers. Okay, if we are spiritually dead and unable to save ourselves, and lost, and enslaved to sin, we need the power of God to make us alive. We need to be made new creatures in Christ. We need to be born again. Okay, so the gospel message through the power of the Holy Spirit does that. But we also need to be counted righteous because we're guilty. We have a debt of sin. We can't make ourselves righteous, so we need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, namely the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift that makes us, or that God can declare us not guilty, okay? So we need the power of the gospel, we need the righteousness of the gospel, okay? Last week, we looked at chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where Paul is primarily addressing the Gentiles, His pagan audience. If you remember, Paul has a mixed audience in Rome, Jews and Gentiles. And basically, the Gentiles were suppressing the truth. If you remember, creation's been plain to everybody. You look up at the sky and you know there's a creator. But instead of worshiping God, honoring God, you suppress that truth and you become an idolater. And then you become a lawbreaker where you end up breaking all of the Ten Commandments in this unrepentant lifestyle of flagrant sin. okay. So Paul's aiming his gun at the Gentiles. And the Jews that are listening are sitting back saying, go get him, Paul. Those rascally Gentiles are always pagans. They're idolaters. Um, we would never do anything outrageous like giving ourselves into homosexuality and all these evil things that you've mentioned. We're... Jews, we're God's people. And so what Paul does in chapter 2 is says, okay, Jews, you think you're off the hook? Let me aim the gun at you and address your issue because your issue is different, okay? Jews and Gentiles are both sinners before God, but the Jews have a different problem than the pagan Gentiles, okay? Because a Jewish person would think to themselves, I would never commit sins like a Gentile. I'm God's chosen person, and because I'm a Jew, that automatically lets me get into heaven because I'm a chosen person of God. Okay, So let's go to chapter 2, and I want to go slow tonight because there are some things that are a little bit confusing, like there are every week. Hey, guys. Um, so let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Okay? Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so in verses 1 through 3, Paul is going to address the danger of judging others, especially the Jews judging the Gentiles. So in verse 1... Paul says, you have no excuse, O man, O man, O man who passes judgment on others. So he he has this imaginary opponent called O man, doesn't give him a name. And this is oftentimes what would happen in ancient literature. Um, It's called a diatribe. Um, A diatribe is like an imaginary debate that you would have with an objector. So Paul is basically looking at this supposedly Jewish man who's sitting in judgment on the Gentiles and saying, you have no excuse. And so he kind of sets up this old man, this generic Jewish person who is passing judgment on others. Okay, So he's saying to the Jewish audience, you have no excuse. Now, go back to chapter 1, verse 20. What did chapter 1, verse 20, what did did Paul say to the Gentiles who were suppressing the truth? At the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. So Paul says, listen, the Gentiles who suppress the truth They have no excuse, but Jews, you who pass judgment on those Gentiles, you have no excuse. And here's the reason why, Jews. Paul says point blank, he calls them to task because they're practicing the very same things. Look what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, what are these things that they're doing, that they would think they would never do? Okay, go back up to the list that we looked at last week, okay? So, look at verse 29 of chapter 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If you can think of a commandment to break, the Gentiles are breaking it. And the Jews are sitting back and saying, those Gentiles, they always break God's Ten Commandments. Look at them. They're they're disobedient to their parents. They're murderers. They're hateful. They're, They're liars. They're gossips. Why in the world do they do those things? And Paul says, you have no right to sit in judgment on the Gentiles who practice these things because you practice the same things also. Now, a Jew listening to this would have been shocked. This would have been shocking to a self-righteous Jew who prided himself on obeying the Ten Commandments. Now, what eventually happens to those who continue in unrepentant sin and practice these things as a lifestyle, okay? So, again, last week, just because you sin every now and again and may commit some of these sins doesn't mean that you can't be saved. What Paul is talking about is unrepentant lifestyle of living in these sins and you never come to faith in Christ. What is the outcome to a person who continues along this path. Okay, verse 2 gives us the answer. What does verse 2 tell us? We know that the judgment of God, does your translation say rightly or correctly, something like that, justly, falls on those who practice such things. Okay, so Paul says, listen, whether you're a Gentile pagan who's committing sins, or you're a self-righteous Jew who's committing sins, it doesn't matter because what God punishes is He's going to punish your sin. God is holy. God is just. He has a sovereign right to pour out His wrath on sinners. But what's the problem with the Jewish person when they hear this? What are they thinking to themselves? What are they sitting back and thinking? I'm not a homosexual. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, I'm not an idolater, I'm not a liar. I mean, we've been given the Ten Commandments and I I do a pretty good job of obeying them. I can obey the Ten Commandments and I'm good. Okay. Spent all summer preaching on the Ten Commandments. In every commandment, if you guys remember, they've been here on Sunday mornings, in every commandment that has an outward action, does the Bible address an inward motivation as well? So you can say out loud, I've never murdered anybody. Well, you who? Neither have I. Anybody here? Raise your hand if you murdered anybody. All right. If I ask you to raise your hand if you murder anybody, probably nobody's going to raise their hand. Raise your hand if you've gotten really angry at somebody. All right. let Let me just read to you what Jesus says, okay? So... You just raised your hand, you lawbreakers. You guys have just broken the commandment. So Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Jesus, you've heard that it was said in days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So the Jews thinking, okay, I'm good. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm off scot-free. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire so what's jesus saying hey you, you can you can do a pretty good job on the outside of not committing murder but if you have anger in your heart towards somebody it's as if you've murdered them in your heart so a jew sitting back is thinking to himself outward action i'm good i haven't murdered anybody but just because you haven't murdered anybody with outward action doesn't mean you're not guilty of breaking the commandment in the heart level. Okay, Adultery. A Jew sitting back thinking, I'm faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. I've never actually physically done the act. Okay, What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 27 through 28? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart so for the self-righteous Jewish person that's sitting there listening to this list of sins that the Gentiles are guilty of they're thinking to themselves don't do that don't do that okay adultery don't do that homosexuality don't do that murder don't do that lying uh, little white lies maybe not stealing don't do that check 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 and all along Paul is saying listen If you understood the law, the Ten Commandments, you would know that just because you have obeyed the outward commandment doesn't mean you haven't broken it at the heart level. You're passing judgment on these pagan Gentiles that you see flagrantly obeying the law, and you're sitting back as a self-righteous Jew saying, I'm good. And Paul says you practice the same exact things. And by the way, not only do you practice them, but you are just as worthy to be judged as they are. And so the Jewish person is saying... Hold, hold your horses, Paul. This is offensive. That's why Paul says, who are you, old man, to pass judgment? And so what does he say in verse 3? He gives a warning. Verse 3, do you suppose, old man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, will you escape the judgment of God? <laughs> okay, he's saying, Be careful, self-righteous Jew, as you're sitting in judgment on these Gentiles that you think are doing all these wacky, wicked things. You're doing the same thing. Do you think you're going to get off scot-free? Do you think that you're not going to get judged for what you're doing? And what's the the rhetorical answer to the question? You're just as guilty, and yes, I would be liable to judgment. So the problem for the judgmental, self-righteous Jewish person is he thinks to himself, I'm a Jew, I'm God's chosen person, God would never judge me because I'm pretty good at obeying the Ten Commandments. And Paul says, you sit in judgment of the Gentiles, but you're just as guilty. Okay, so that's the warning. Verses 1 through 3, there's a warning to the self-righteous, judgmental Jewish person that's judging the Gentiles and yet does the same exact things. Whether flagrant outward action or inward motivations of the heart, no matter how you slice it, sin is sin, and you can break all the Ten Commandments by doing them in your heart if you never do them with outward action. So let's look at verse 4. God always, in the midst of a warning of judgment, holds out hope of repentance. So what does verse 4 say? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Okay. God is patient and will give you time to repent. But verse 4 warns against the sin of presumption. What's the sin of presumption? Let me put it this way. A person could say, Wow, I keep sinning. And I keep getting away with it. And I never get caught. And I've never been punished. And nobody's ever found out about it. So I must be okay with God. God must not care that much about my sin because so far, nothing bad has happened to me yet. So I'm just going to keep sinning. And what does Paul say? God shows, what are the words there? Kindness, forbearance, patience. In other words, God is showing tremendous restraint in meeting out punishment up to a point. So you can, you can have two responses to not getting away with sin. Okay. You can have the response of presumption. I keep getting away with sin. I keep getting away with sin. God's so patient. God's so kind. He keeps letting me get away with sin. I'm going to keep sinning. Or you can say, wow, look at how I've gotten away with sin, and I haven't gotten punished, and I should be punished, and God should, should strike me down, and I should be dead. I'm going to look at that act of mercy of God and that's going to lead me to repentance. I'm going to actually repent as opposed to continuing in sin. So God is a God of compassion. This starts way back in Exodus. Can't wait till we get there on, on Sunday mornings. Um, Exodus 34, 5-7. through seven. This is what we call the credo or the, what I call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament because it's God's statement about His character that He reveals to Moses in the cleft of the rock and it's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. So um, Exodus 34, 5-7, through The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him, that's Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, it's repeated in Psalm 103.8. This is like repeated at like six or seven places. I'm not going to give you all of them. I'm just going to give you a few. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay. Ask a question. Aren't you glad God is slow to anger? Are there times in your life where God should have wiped you out? And he has not. Now, should that lead you to continue rebelling or should it lead you to fall on your face in repentance and realize that God's been gracious? Joel 2, 12-13 is an Old Testament passage that ties these concepts together. So, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. That's repentance. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Okay, so this brings up a question. If God's kindness and forbearance and patience is meant to lead you to repentance, the key question you've got to ask is, okay, what is repentance? Okay. The word in the original language, metanoio or metanoia, depending on if it's a, a verb, or, or use it as a, as a noun. It means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It really means to have a change of mind. You begin to think differently about yourself and you think differently about sin and you have a whole mind shift that actually leads you to a life change. That's what repentance is, biblically the word. Now, there's some people from history that have given some good, um, some good definitions. Um, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion has a great section on repentance. Let me give you one of his definitions. An internal renovation of mind, bringing with it true amendment of life. Internal reno- What's a renovation? You know, I, I started watching the show last night. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's on HTVT. It's a very Brady. They're taking the Brady Bunch house, and they're renovating it. And it's going to be a major thing because the house from the outside of the Brady Bunch is not the house they used in the sound set. So they bought the Brady Bunch house that they used for the outside shot. And they're going to go in and make it look like the house that was on TV. So anyway, a renovation of mind. Repentance is your mind being renovated, totally changed, totally cleaned out, totally brought to newness that brings about a change of life. Okay? Thomas Watson, he's got a whole book on repentance. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So repentance is not merely confession. You can confess sins and not repent. And there's a false type of repentance. Esau got upset. Or let's put it this way. You can feel bad that you got caught And promise never ever to do it again and not repent. You can feel bad that you have to deal with the consequences of your sin and never repent. So let's talk just a little bit about repentance because repentance involves some things. Repentance energizes a confession of specific sins. When you truly repent, you don't say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. You get very specific as to the sins that you've committed. So Psalm 32.5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. He's talking to the Lord. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins confessing those sins specifically to the Lord, owning up to it, not hiding it, being contrite, being honest. I mean, God knows what you've done already anyway. But God wants us to come clean. Is that hail? That can't be hail. That must be baseball size. Go see if that's baseball-sized hail, because all of our cars are gonna <laughs> going to be in big trouble. Or <laughs> now that we've now that we've to, now that we've totally gotten like we're under assault. <laughs> Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So repentance is its going to be very distracting. <laughs> <laughs> repentance is more than just, hey, God, I'm sorry I did it. It's a, it's a mourning over your sin. It's a confessing of the specific sin. It's a, it's a sadness over that sin. And it's a change of mind over that sin. And it leads to an actual lifelong turning from sin. Um, repentance is not just a one-time thing. You're, you're always repenting. Um, Isaiah 55.7 says, um, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, golf ball size. I guess golf ball is better than baseball, but that's still pretty big. racquetball size? How come when we talk about hail, we talk about baseball, and then some people talk about like we never talk about fruit? Grapefruit size. (laughs) Or plum size. It's always baseball or golf or it's never a a ball, yeah. Okay. So notice here that repenting means turning away from two things. Your ways, okay, so Isaiah 55, let a man forsake his ways. So you're returning from your ways, your behavior, and you're turning away from your thoughts, your attitudes. You have a change of mind. Luke 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist is saying that if you truly repent, there will be fruit in your life showing that. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they, they turned from their idols and they turned to Christ. So Paul is saying here if you don't repent, there's judgment awaiting you. And don't sit in judgment on those other people, those Gentiles who are sinning and you're doing the same thing because you could be just as rightly judged for those same sins. But God is patient with you and He's kind towards you and He's doing that. He's not punishing you yet because He wants you to repent, not to continue into sin. Okay? But then in verse 5-11, through 11, He goes back to the reality of Judgment. So let's just read 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay. If there's no repentance, what awaits the unrepentant sinner? Verse 5. You're storing up wrath. If you don't repent and you continue in sin and you have a hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. Now, Paul is specifically talking about the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the second coming, that final day when God's going to come and send Christ to judge the living and the dead. So, Let's talk about the day of wrath because we find out in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, Jesus will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will come back in flaming fire to bring wrath to those who are not believers. Now, we studied Revelation last year, and there's a lot of stuff. Um, oh, I forgot verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His mind. Revelation 6, 15-17 kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb that's jesus for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand okay so paul is being very realistic here he's saying listen for jews and for gentiles both who continue in unrepentant sin and do not come to faith in Christ, there is a day of wrath. There's a final judgment. And now verse 6 is very, very confusing. And I had to spend some time really digging into what exactly does this mean. God will render or God will pay back each one according to His what? What? What words, on, what words in your Bible? God will reward you based upon your what? Whoa, Paul, hold, hold, hold up. You're saying on the day of judgment we'll be rewarded based upon our works? I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why will we be judged on our works? Well, let me just tell you that the Bible teaches that we will be judged by works. All the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Psalm 62, 12. O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That's a direct quote. Okay, Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Sounds familiar, right? So Old Testament, God will repay you according to your works, to your work. Okay, what does Jesus say about his second coming? Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then Revelation 22, 22 Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Okay. Are you confused? Are we saved by works or are we saved by grace? Okay. Grace. Are you judged by works? Yes, but let's unpack that and explain what we mean by that. Okay? In verses 7 through 11, Paul is going to contrast two types of people. Now, there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who are Christians and those who are not. There are believers, there's unbelievers. There's sheep, there's goats. There's no in-between. Okay, so on the final day of judgment, there's going to be those that go to heaven, those that go to hell. There's not going to be any in-between. It's, it's, it's one or the other. And so Paul is contrasting these two types of people. So if you look there in verse 7, for those who persevere in good works and they seek God's glory, what are they going to, what are they going to get? Eternal life. Okay, so who's he talking about here? Save people, Christians, okay. Second, he talks about people who are self-seeking and do not (laughs) obey God's truth. What are they going to receive? Wrath, fury, tribulation, distress. Who's he talking about there? Okay, so who receives eternal life? Save people. Who receives wrath, fury, tribulation, and, and distress? Unsaved people, okay. Now, is Paul teaching salvation by works instead of grace alone? Can he be teaching that? No, okay. We know he can't be teaching that, but what's he teaching? So there's a lot, I mean a lot of opinion from the commentators and the scholars as to what Paul is saying. Okay, so I'm going to give you where I land on this, knowing that there's a lot of debate. So there's a view out there, the first group. So so what does it sound like? Just read it at face value. Verse 7, what does it sound sound like the way you get eternal life? Look at verse 7. Okay, we know you're going to get eternal life, but how do you get it? You continue in patience, doing well. You you continue throughout your life in good works, and you seek glory and honor and immortality. Okay, does that say anything about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone? Or does it seem like if you live your entire life doing good, you'll eventually get eternal life? Is that what it looks like to you? Okay, that's what it looks like to me, doesn't it? If you continue throughout your life doing good, you will be rewarded with eternal life. So what I take this to mean, and this is what a lot of commentators take it to mean, some do not, but this is what I take it to mean. This first group, I think Paul is speaking in hypothetical terms in relation to God's inflexible law. So let me explain it this way. I think what Paul is saying is this. If, keyword if, if a person could obey God's law perfectly and be patient and well-doing and love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, with all their strength, with all their, their might, 100% perfection, 100% of the time, if a person could hypothetically do that, then they would be awarded eternal life and they would earn that through perfect obedience to God's standard. So hypothetically speaking, let me just ask you hypothetically, if a person could perfectly obey God's law his or her entire life, and they did that, would they be rewarded with eternal life? If they could do that. What's the problem? Nobody can do that. Okay. So the point is, the standard, no one can attain that standard. So you don't get eternal life by doing these things. So who's Paul's audience? Self-righteous, moralistic, legalistic Jewish person who thinks that if I could just obey all the law and not be like one of those crazy Gentiles, I could get eternal life. Okay. So is there anybody righteous enough to do enough good to gain eternal life? Okay. okay let's let Paul answer that in the same book. So Turn to chapter 3, 19 through 20, and see what Paul says in just a few verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's Paul saying there? Can you be right with God through works of the law? No. Okay. Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but what? Through faith in Jesus Christ So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul can't be any clearer. How are you saved? Are you saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone or are you saved by doing good works? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Okay? Now, what is the basis for judgment? works. Did you perfectly obey the Ten Commandments your entire life? Nobody can. God will judge those who think they could, but they never trusted Christ for salvation. So here's the point. When it says down there, God shows no partiality, Paul is saying to the Jewish person, You who think you can attain salvation by works of the law, you are just as much toast as the Gentile you're putting judgment on who's doing these flagrant sins that you would never imagine yourself doing. They're majorly sinning in immorality and you're majorly sinning in your failure to live up to the Ten Commandments that you think you can. And you're both guilty. So here's Paul's main point. Works cannot save anybody but works can sure send you to hell does that make sense Okay, works aren't going to save you but works will send you to hell are you saved by works do you go to hell why do you go to hell Okay? Those in hell will be there for two reasons. Got to keep this in mind, okay? They died with a sin nature that is rebellious against God and spiritually dead. So, those in hell have a sin nature that they're born with. But, what does that sin nature that you're born with cause you to do? Number two, that nature causes them to actually commit sins. So why do you sin? Do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? (laughs) Your nature is that of being a sinner and that causes you to commit sins. So not only are you spiritually dead and born guilty, but you actually commit sins. So you are in hell because of your nature as a sinner and the actual works that you did as a sinner. Does that make sense? So Jesus says in John 8:34, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, for the non-Christian person, the final judgment will be based on deeds done in the body that stem from a nature that is corrupt. Make sense? So why do you sin? Because you are a sinner. Now, let me go back to these two words that I wrote up here earlier. In the gospel, this is not in your notes, but this is important. The gospel is what? The power of God and the righteousness of God. Okay. So, as an unsaved person, what's your nature? You're, you're dead in sin. You're lost. You're enslaved. It's your what? Nature. So that has to be overcome by a power greater than yourself. Can you make yourself alive? Can you make yourself found? Can you get yourself out of slavery? No, when the gospel comes to you in power, for the Christian, God gives you a new nature. Okay? You have a new nature. Okay. Now, you also get righteousness. Now, do you still sin when you're, when you're saved? Okay. You still sin. You, commit, you still commit works of evil. Would you agree? Even though you commit works of evil, what is your standing before God because of righteousness? You are not guilty because of, of what Christ has done. Okay. So for the, the Christian... We've been set free from the power of our nature of sin, and even though we still sin, we've got a righteousness that counts us not guilty. And the gospel has done that for us through Jesus. Now, what's the fate of an unsaved person who dies without Christ? They are still dead in their sins. They're still enslaved. Are they they a new creation? Now, they do works of sin, right? Are they covered in the righteousness of Christ? So they are suffering in hell, not only because of their nature, but also the sins that stem from that nature. So we've got to remember something very carefully, and I need to go slowly here. You and I are absolutely in no way saved by works. Amen, 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 okay? Can we all agree with that? (laughs) Okay. Yet, be very careful here, our works show evidence that we're truly saved. Let me say that again. Are we saved by works? Do works show evidence that you're saved? Okay. Now, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? I'm glad you asked because I got a verse. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Okay. Very, very clear here. Paul's very clear. Don't get the cart before the horse. Read it in the order that Paul gave it. Okay. For by works you've been... No, what does it say? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Okay, stop right there. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not by works. Amen? Got it right there? Okay. For, verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for What? Good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we're saved by—excuse me—we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For good works, and the good works show evidence that we were truly saved by grace in the first place. Okay. We also see this in Titus two, eleven through fourteen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Are we saved by grace? Is salvation by grace? Yes. What does that grace do? That grace in our life trains us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us on the cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? zealous for good works. Are you saved by good works? Are you saved by grace? As those saved by grace will be evidence good works because God's grace works in us to do that, right? Okay. James, which is, some people try to pit James against Paul. James just says it this way in James 2, 17 through 18. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Is James saying we're saved by works? He's saying that good works will show evidence that you truly had saving faith. 1 John 1.16 If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth okay. so if we have fellowship with christ what are we going to do we're not going to walk in darkness we're going to walk in in newness of life first john 2 4 whoever says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him okay so we can't do anything to produce this righteousness no matter how hard we try. We can't do enough good works to earn it. We can't love God enough to earn it. We cannot. So the law, all the way back to the covenant of works in the garden when God said to Adam, everything I've given you except for this one tree, don't eat of it. The day of you eat of it, you will surely die. The law says this. Do all these things and you will earn eternal life. The law says if you can perfectly obey the Ten Commandments with 100% perfection, 100% of the time, you'll you'll earn it. Now, we know that's impossible, right? It's impossible. If someone did do it perfectly, he or she would hypothetically be awarded with eternal life, but we know that nobody can. Now, the gospel, on the other hand, says this, Since God has gifted you with eternal life, do all these things in joyful obedience to serve your Lord. Okay? As a saved person, are you supposed to do good works? Why do you do them? Do you do them to earn brownie points with God? Or do you do them out of joyful gratitude because God saved you? Joyful gratitude. Now, believers have been saved by grace, and they will demonstrate the fruit of their new birth in good works. The good works will prove out in the end that you were indeed a Christian. Okay, Is faith an internal belief of the heart where you trust Christ and nobody else can see it? Are good works evidence of that heart transformation? Do the good works save you? They show evidence that you were saved. Okay? Unbelievers who have not been saved, they will continue in unrepentant sin doing works of unrighteousness, and on the final day, they will be judged by those works of sins so Paul reminds his audience that the judgment applies both to Jews and Greeks. So here's, we can kind of get caught up in this. Is Paul talking about works? Is he talking about? Salvation by works, what's this final judgment? We can kind of get caught up in that and lose the force for the trees. What he's basically saying here is to the self righteous, judgmental Jew who thinks he's not that bad but actually sins all the time, there is judgment. Also to the pagan Gentile who commits flagrant sins that Jews would consider outrageous, there is judgment. And Isaiah 64 6 would say this about our works. We all have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are faded like a leaf, and our iniquities like wind take us away. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Okay. Do I need to stop here and see if there's any questions? Or was that clear or was that confusing? Yes. That's a good question. Did everybody hear a question? So you are saved, but there's no fruit. Okay. So let's, let's start with the premise. If you are truly saved, will you show fruit? Yes. Okay. So you say, if you're saved and there's no fruit, let's go back to the first part of the question. Would you truly be saved if there is no fruit? But isn't that our place to say that? To, uh, to another person? No. Because only God knows their heart. Exactly. Here's what I would say. We in no way can ever sit... Oh, I'm about to lean over here. In no way can we ever... Why did I do that? In no way can we ever sit in judgment on somebody else's salvation and say, that person's saved, that person's lost, I know that person's going to hell, I know that person's going to heaven, and be a fruit inspector. Okay, We we can't do that, Okay, okay? But we can also say especially like as a parent or a pastor or a concerned friend, if a person claims to be a Christian, you don't know their heart, but all you know is they're claiming it, their public profession, and you see no demonstrable fruit in their life, it would lead you to pause and say, either one or two things is going on. Either they're in a period of extreme disobedience and God needs to discipline them and they need to repent. Or number two, they're not saved and they need to repent. So either way, it's a dangerous place to be. And as a concerned person that sees somebody else like that, I think you can warn them. I don't think you want to lay down the, you're not saved. I think what you could say is, you know, you're telling me you're a Christian and by your lifestyle and what I see, I'm not seeing any evidence of you walking with the Lord. Let's talk about that and kind of go down that path. So I think you can be concerned and pray and be aware, but I don't think you can look at the heart and say they're truly saved and make a judgment on that. But I would be very concerned for a person who claims to be a true Christian and not see any fruit. Now, we don't want to be legalistic and say, like, like there is no biblical standard of how much fruit is enough. You understand what I'm saying? Because then you can become legalistic, and the fruit can be... You can make a bunch of lists to say this is what fruit looks like. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. There's your list of fruit. (laughs) Okay, so if they meet that standard, they're producing fruit. Okay, so let's ask about fruit. Okay, let's talk about fruit. You could possibly don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do and be a really fine, upstanding human moral person but not demonstrate any fruit of the Spirit. You may not be a loving person. Um, so I think the fruit of the Spirit is a good evidence. Um, 1 John gives three tests related to, like, to know if you're truly a Christian. And they're repeated all throughout 1 John. One is the theology test, one is the love test, and one's the moral test. So the theology test, do you have a right theology of, of the gospel and who Jesus is? In other words, if you're a true Christian, you're going to have solid doctrine. You may not have all your doctrine perfect, but you're going to have a right belief system. Okay? Number two, you're going to have love. Love for your brothers. You're going to demonstrate love. You're going to be a loving person. And number three, you're going to have a morally pure lifestyle. Not perfection, but so I would say, if if you claim to be a Christian and you have faulty theology and you're not loving and you have an immoral lifestyle, you're probably either in a period of disobedience or you're not saved. But we don't know, we can't look into somebody's heart and know that. Only God knows that. Does that answer your question? Or? You. Okay, that's a tough one because you you we, we can all if we all were to say a person in our lives we know we know somebody. All of us probably here know somebody that claims to be a Christian but doesn't see any fruit. And what's the first thing we want to think of? I hope they're a Christian or they may not be a Christian. And so there's that whole internal struggle of what do you do when you see that? Okay. Any other questions? All right. Now we get into some more difficult waters. So let's go to verses 12 through 16. And Paul is going to contrast... The Jew who has the law and grown up in the synagogue and heard the teachings versus a Gentile that's never heard these types of things. So the law and conscience. So let's read verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay, what in the world's Paul talking about? Let's try to unpack this and figure out if I can turn the page here. Okay, So, as a Gentile growing up during Paul's day in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, they're not in Jerusalem, they they're haven't grown up Jewish, they did not have the privilege of having the law of Moses. They did not grow up hearing the Ten Commandments. They grew up with Zeus and Hermes and all the pagan gods and goddesses of their Gentile Greek world. They weren't in the synagogues from a young age learning the Old Testament stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had no clue what the Ten Commandments were because they weren't taught that. That's what Paul's saying. Ephesians 2.12 talks about how the Gentiles, remember that you, he's talking to the Gentiles here, were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, Jews have a privilege. What's the privilege of a Jewish person growing up? They heard the Ten Commandments. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew what God expected. Okay? So they knew what God's law was and what God requires. The Gentiles did not. Does that mean the Gentiles are off the hook? Can the Gentiles on the day of judgment say, well, I didn't know the Ten Commandments, so, you know, I'm not guilty. I can't be held accountable for what I didn't know and didn't obey because I didn't know these things. I'm just free and clear. Okay. The Gentiles will be punished in hell, not for what they didn't know, but for their sin okay, ignorance of the law is no excuse for final judgment, you see what I'm saying, just because you as a Gentile don't know the Ten Commandments that says thou shalt not murder, if you murder, are you still going to be guilty, yes, okay, so a Gentile can't go to hell and say, well, I didn't know what the Ten Commandments said not to kill, and so I didn't know, well, you're not in hell because you didn't know, you're in hell because you committed the sin, the sin is what what got you there, Okay? Now I'm gonna skip Luke 12 because that's just gonna bring more confusion. So let's just skip that. Okay. Um, yet for the Jews, okay, so the the Jews who think they're better, what's gonna be their judgment? They'll be judged by the law. Okay, so you see that so, so look at verse, go back and look at verse. 12 for all who've sinned without the law will also perish without the law okay who's he talking about there who's who's without the law the gentiles they are going to perish perish means what more than that apollomy go to hell yeah uh, perish in the original language apollomy means suffer in hell okay and all who have sinned under the law who are those who are under the law Jews, they will be judged by the law. So in a sense, there's somewhat of a higher accountability to the Jews because they know God's standard. The Gentiles don't know God's standard, but they're still held accountable for it. So the Jews are going to be judged by the law. What does that mean? That means this. If you... Commit, all right? So to be judged by the law means you have to obey God's law with 100% perfection, 100% of the time. And if you can't do that, you will be judged. Great news, right? Anybody done that? Okay, Galatians three ten through twelve. Paul says this: for all who rely. What does it mean to rely? All who are banking on. The works of the law, the Ten Commandments, if, you're, if, that's what you're gonna, if that's what you're relying on, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's saying, listen, if you... If the law is your standard of how you want to live your life, then you better obey it perfectly and perpetually. And if you can't do that, you're under a curse. And James says in James 2, 10 through 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. I kept 90% of the law, but broke that 10%. Well, that 10% is enough to make it 100%. Okay? So what Paul is saying here is, listen, Jews, it's one thing to sit in the synagogue and hear the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses read, and you can say, Hey, I can, I can sit there and I, I grew up in synagogue and I heard this. I've heard this a million times. I've heard the law. It's another thing to do it with perfection. That's what he's saying in verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, what Paul's saying is listen, Jews, If you can do the law, that is, if you can keep the law 100% of the time with 100% perfection in thought, word, and deed, you would be justified. You would be accepted. You could earn a right standing in God's presence. And yet, what's the reality? It's an excruciating impossibility. Okay? So Paul is saying to the Jewish audience, you think by being a self-righteous, moralistic, judgmental Jew looking down upon these Gentiles that if you just sit in synagogue and just hear the Ten Commandments, you're cool. You can't just sit there and hear them. Actually, the standard for you is to obey them perfectly, and you can't do that. That's the standard. And if you die in your sins, you will be judged by your failure to keep that law because no one can do it. Okay, So that's the plight of the the Jews. Now in verses 14-15, he's going to talk about the Gentiles. Now what's the thing with the Gentiles? Did they have the Ten Commandments? No. Could they be judged by what they didn't know? Are Are the Gentiles judged by the Ten Commandments they didn't know? No, they're judged by their sin. But Paul makes a very interesting argument. Notice what he says there. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they don't have the Ten Commandments, but by nature, innately, intuitively, they do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What's he saying there? He's saying that while Gentiles may not know the specifics of the law, like thou shalt have no other gods before me, you know, 1 through 10, they may not know the specifics of the law, they do know intuitively that it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to disobey parents. So, Paul is saying the Gentiles may not have an actual Ten Commandments that they can look at and know, but they know intuitively by nature that if I go kill my neighbor, that's wrong. Just know it. they just know it in their heart it's wrong. If I go steal something from somebody that's not, they know it's wrong. So for the Jews who had the law, they were more responsible for keeping it and failed and thus deserved judgment. There was no special privilege to being a Jew. In fact, I think the burden was more severe on them because they knew God's standards. Yet, the Gentiles have no excuse to say they shouldn't be held accountable for what they know in the Ten Commandments because God gave them a conscience and they internally know right from wrong and they're still held accountable. What does he say there? Look at verse 15. They, shall, they show that the works of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness. So, God has put in every single person what we would call a conscience that makes them know right from wrong. Whether, any, whether you've been told thou shalt not steal, when you steal something, you know what's wrong and the person you stole from knows it's wrong. Okay, now look at what it says there. At the end of verse 15, Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, what's Paul saying? Their conflicting thoughts excuse and excuse them. Think of it this way. I'm going to read what I wrote here so I make sure I say it right. A pagan Gentile does not know the Ten Commandments, but he's tempted to go into his neighbor's house and steal something valuable. This is not on your notes. This is in my notes. Okay, So he may think twice about doing it, because his conscience and societal pressure would tell him it would be a bad thing to do and get caught. So it accuses him and he doesn't do it. Okay, So Gentile doesn't have the Ten Commandments. that says, thou shalt not steal. But yet he's tempted in his heart to go steal something from his neighbor. And he goes close to the house and he thinks about it. And he realizes, man, if I do this, I could get caught. I could get punished. Think about the shame I'd bring upon my family. So he doesn't do it. His conscience what accuses him and says that's going to be wrong okay but another time his conscience conscience may accuse excuse him okay so another day he goes by his neighbor's house and says i really want what that guy has and he goes in and he steals that item and his conscience doesn't bother him his conscience excuses him and says I could probably get away with this. If I do it sneakily, nobody would know. Um, I think I can get away with it. So here's the issue. There is no written objective, Ten Commandments in his life that says thou shalt not steal. That he's learned in the synagogue growing up. But there is a moral sense of right and wrong in his heart And conscience and collectively among his culture that says that stealing is wrong. So here's the point. Whether stealing is labeled in the Ten Commandments and you've known it all your life like a Jew, or your conscience and society tells you that stealing is wrong, Gentile, the bottom line is what? If you steal, you're guilty for the action of stealing. What's the sin? Stealing, okay? And why do you steal? That action of stealing stems from my sinful desire that you're born with. What does Jesus say in Mark 7, 21 through 23? For from within, out of the heart, come what? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, verse 16 says, On that day, what's that day? The day of wrath, the day of judgment. According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Even the secret thoughts of our hearts will be judged. So here's the bottom line. Okay, I want to make sure we understand this because it's very confusing, but I want to... It is vital to stress that justification or being declared righteous by God is based solely on the work of Christ and by faith alone. But works are necessary at the final judgment, but as fruit of genuine faith and not the ground of our being justified. So here's the point. No Christian should ever fear final judgment, wondering whether, am I going to be saved or am I going to be lost? Am I going to get in or am I not going to get in? Every Christian, if you trust in Christ for salvation, you will inherit eternal life. So the judgment for the Christian is not whether you're going to get to heaven or whether you're going to get to hell. It's a judgment based upon works. Now, don't ask me how that all works out. I don't think. All right, so let's paint this scenario, okay? So I don't know how people say you're like all lined up in a line. We don't know yet, but let's just say you're in heaven and like you just happen to be next to Billy Graham. And like, okay, you're getting judged for your works and Billy Graham's getting judged for his works. And you're like, <laughs> great, I get next to Billy Graham. So in heaven, are you going to be disappointed in the rewards you receive versus the rewards that Billy Graham received? Are you going to be disappointed in heaven? No. Are you going to be jealous in heaven? No. Are you going to be wondering why he got more and you got less in heaven? No. So, so, so regardless of what... Billy Graham or somebody else gets, you're not going to get frustrated or jealous because you're going to be in a state of perfection. You're still going to receive a reward. You're still going to be judged by your works, but it's going to be something that's not going to be um, painful or embarrassing or um, any type of stress for the Christian. Does that make sense? Okay. Also, no human being complete, complete ignorance as everyone has sinned against some type of moral law. That may be the law, the Ten Commandments, or it may be inward conscience, but you are guilty. So the point is, going all the way back to chapter 1, so let's bring this together. Gentile Jew. Last week we talked about Gentiles. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, All humans know something about God. He's made it clear. But, verse 18, they suppress that truth of unrighteousness. Here in verse 8, chapter 2, they're self-seeking and they're disobedient. So every person who dies without Christ as their Lord and Savior comes under the wrath of God due to their personal sin, whether they knew the Ten Commandments or not. So let's recap this section. This confusing section. And then we'll see if you guys have questions. The self-righteous person who judges others and yet does the same sins will be condemned. God's judgment is never unjust, but is right. God is good and gives time for people to repent to escape that judgment. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God will judge every single person. The Christian will not be judged for eternal life, but his or her works will prove authentic faith. The non-Christian will be judged for suppressing the truth, self-seeking pleasure, and disobedience. People will be individually judged by what they know is right and wrong and failure to do it, whether the written Ten Commandments or a law within their hearts by their conscience. And ultimately, what sends a person to hell is their personal sin, not knowing the gospel or the law is irrelevant as to whether they're there or not. They're there because of their sin. Okay, are you thoroughly confused or did I make that clear? Or do we need to ask some questions? Yeah, so the question is, what about the Jews in the Old Testament before Christ came? Okay, so God has always saved His people by grace through faith. And for the Old Testament people that had faith in Yahweh, the Lord, and believed that they were sinners in need of a sacrificial substitute, whether it was an animal, they were looking forward to the promise of Christ and His coming. So like Moses and Abraham and David, they're saved not by keeping the Ten Commandments because they could never do it. They're saved by faith in a future Messiah. They didn't know he was necessarily Jesus of Nazareth who would die on a cross, but they did know that God would send a Messiah to come and there would be a need for a sacrifice in the place of sinners, and they were trusting in that future promise. And so ours is kind of a looking back at what Jesus did and having faith. They're just kind of looking forward to what Jesus would do, but it's both by faith, not by works. Does that make sense, Shauna? Did they understand, like, the Ten Commandments? Like, they know they couldn't live up to those. Yeah, they did, because if you... I don't know if you guys were here... If you, Well, the, the last sermon I preached on... Um, well, two weeks ago, that when, when we did the Ten Commandments wrap-up, at at the end of the Ten Commandments, what did they say? They hid away, and they, they trembled at the base of the mountain and said we can't talk to God. He's too great. Moses, you talk to him. They knew they couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. So they wanted a mediator. They wanted Moses to be that one, to be the go between. So it's kind of a picture of how Jesus is the only one that can go between sinful people and a holy God. So even from the Old Testament, Shauna, the Israelites knew they could never live up to God's standard in order to be saved. That's why they had a day of atonement to take care of all their sins with the sacrificial system. That's why they had to do all of those different sacrifices because they knew they couldn't keep the law, that there had to be atonement for sin. Does that make sense, Sean? Okay. Any Good questions tonight. Any, any Any other questions? I see pensive looks of confusion on your faces, so either there's no questions or you're trying to mull things over. The last statement on the screen there, it says not knowing the gospel. That's kind of confusing how you have that written because you would have had a chance to hear it at some point, wouldn't it? Not necessarily. There's people that have lived and died for million like for thousands of years that have never heard the gospel. And so the question is, is God obligated to bring that gospel to him? He's not obligated to do that. So, so that goes back to what we la- talked about yeah. last week. <laughs> yeah, last yeah I mean we're I guess we're operating some people operate on the assumption that God is obligated to save everybody and God is obligated to get His message to everybody, and He's under no obligation to do that. Um, he can choose who He wants to get the message to. That's His, that's his prerogative. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do missions. We should do missions and get the gospel out to all people. But um, there have been tribes of people that have lived and died that have never heard the gospel. And so the question is, if they never had conscious faith in Jesus, would they be saved now there's different views we talked about last week about that um, and you got to choose where you're going to be on that spectrum Is that yeah. that's kind of a tough that's a tough one yeah. that, that's a tough one all right clear as mud Everybody, want to go out and see what type of damage their car got? Here, <laughs> you know, I was like, stop talking about Romans. I want to get out to my car and see what this grapefruit-sized hail or whatever. <laughs> Not grapefruit-sized. That would be big. You said it was golf ball size? It was golf ball size. Not pea they size? Had over on the I already have hail damage from the one back in May, so I've waited until the end of the summer to do my claim. And so I'm going to just. The hospital, there was oh, at the hospital? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, this may be a very kind of confusing passage of Scripture, but I guess what I want us to go away with is um, there's really only two people in this world, Lord. There's those who have trusted you for salvation through the power of the gospel, who've been made new in Christ and have the righteousness of Christ, and there are those who are not. And Lord, we want to share the gospel with them, and we know that your kindness is meant to lead to repentance. And so, Lord, if we see people in our lives that are living disobedient lifestyles, um, or even if there's anybody in this room that's living a disobedient lifestyle, and and you've been kind to them, would that lead them to repentance? And so, Lord, help us to always keep our eyes fixed on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.